Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The national thinkers who helped draft and implement the federal constitution were ultimately hoping to remind Americans that the American Revolution was not a revolution against government, but against tyrannical government. That's author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee, discussing how the young federal government used lighthouses to promote national unity. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle Series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is author and Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee. And he'll be discussing how the federal government used lighthouses to promote a national identity and hopefully national prosperity. In our conversation today with Sean David McGee, we get into a lot of the messy details of how our early government worked, especially how little of an early federal government we really had. As Sean points out in his, in his article, the federal government, in terms of what it managed, didn't manage much. A few handful of soldiers on the western frontier, the delivery of the U.S. mail, and only a handful of lighthouses. There wasn't much to the early federal government, but there was a desire to make it so. And that's what we'll hear tonight from Sean. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Sean David McGee. Sean David McGee, welcome back. Uh, thank you again, Brady, for inviting me back onto the podcast. I uh, I enjoy listening each week, and like most of us, I'm always happy to share what I'm researching with a broader community knowledgeable on the subject. Sean, you've been on before. Remind us about your background and tell us what you've been up to. Uh, okay. Uh, just very briefly, I'm an historian of 18th century British North America uh, with a particular interest in the politics of the American Revolution, the Confederation period, and the early national period. Uh, by day, I teach history at the secondary level in Cinnamons in New Jersey, and by night, I am adjunct faculty of history in the Philadelphia metropolitan area, currently at Moore College of Art and Design. Uh, I earned my graduate degree in American history from Rutgers University and my PhD from Temple University, and I have a book coming out, um, a part of the Journal of the American Revolution book series, uh, coming out in April called No Longer Subjects of the British King, the Political Transformation of Royal Subjects to Republican Citizens, 1774 to 1776, that generally looks at the sort of emotional change uh, as Americans began, or at least Whigs began to, to, to recognize that their future was no longer as part of the British imperial structure, but rather something else, something that was, you know, slowly coming into in, into focus. So it, it, it tracks a sort of development of a proto-national ethos, uh, not exactly a national identity, something else, uh, something a, a, a little harder to describe. What first drew your interest into this topic? 
Well, this is a strange odyssey. So this goes all the way back to 2011. Uh, at that point, I was a regular fixture at the Library Company of Philadelphia, uh, researching my master's thesis. Uh, I was I was reading through a years a few years worth of the Gazette of the United States, which is uh, an early American newspaper that was really dedicated to promoting the Washington administration. Uh, at any rate, I was reading through several years worth of that Gazette uh, as part of the research for my master's thesis, and I. I kept seeing an advertisement for lighthouse construction from the Treasury Department in, in you know, many of these editions. And I mean, I saw the advertisement enough times that it caused me to write it down so I could remember to look into it further at a later date. Uh, unfortunately, once I, well, I guess fortunately, rather, uh, once I finished my graduate degree, I was accepted to Temple's doctoral program. So I had very little in the way of time to look into it. Uh, in fact, over the course of the program, I wrote down plenty of ideas that I felt worthy of further inquiry. Uh, but when I, I finally finished the degree, it freed up a remarkable amount of time. And I, I've, I guess I've been sort of been playing like an like academic catch-up. So this was one of the ideas that I had that I wanted to really look into. And uh, I finally had the time to do it. Uh, so uh, I began tracing those advertisements down last year, actually, uh, into the gazettes that I used. And I um, also began you know, carefully combing through Hamilton's papers from his years as Treasury Secretary. And that led me to Hamilton's correspondence with Washington. And then I began to realize that lighthouses, at least for Hamilton and, and Washington, they became critical for selling the new national government to a, a sort of skeptical public. Um, we, we have to remember, uh, as, as you know, people who, who investigate the past, and I, and I say this to my poor students dozens of times each year, history is studied looking backward, but it's lived looking forward. Uh, and, you know, looking backward, we appreciate that despite despite some growing pains like, you know, the, the development of political parties, for example, or the Civil War, uh, the constitutional nation has endured into the 21st century. But no one could have predicted that uh, just because things turned out the way that they did doesn't mean that they had to. Um, we're trained as historians to never use the word inevitable as it denies historical actors agency. Washington and the new government may have started with the advantage of some national optimism, uh, uh, but even Washington left the presidency with a diminished reputation. So, so the idea that government could have failed is the point of what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to draw out here. Uh, so Washington, his inner circle, and the first federal officials, they had more to do than just an admirable job. They had, they had to make certain that what the national government did benefited the American people in a way that represented both the potency and the competence of the new national order. Uh, and the the federal lighthouse program, uh, at least as far as I can tell, became one way for the administration to not only invest in the public good, but and here's the key to invest in a way that was visible, to invest in a way that was measurable and to invest in a way that was consistent with any metric of objective political success. Sean, you mentioned in your article another historian that said that the federal government was nothing more than, quote, a state of mind after the revolution. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, that's Alan Miller, uh, who wrote an outstanding article called The Lighthouse Top, I see, uh, for the uh, Journal of Vernacular Architecture Forum. Uh, and I, I, I don't think that he's wrong there. I think, uh, man, that's, uh, you know, years ago, I, I, I imagined like the Federalist administrations as a visible republic and Jeffersonian administrations as an invisible republic. Uh, and so as I wrote in the article, the, gov uh, the, the government under the new constitution started as an invisible and unremarkable presence in the lives of most ordinary Americans. I mean, <clears throat> think about this. 
1789, it was cheaper to send a thousand pounds of goods across the Atlantic Ocean to a foreign port than it was to send them by land in any direction for 50 miles in the Federal Republic. There were no real physical symbols of American empire. There was no White House. There was no Capitol building. There were no statues in public places. Nothing like what we have today that represents the American mission and embraces all of the complexities of the American past. Uh, in fact, and, and I, I definitely say this with a little hyperbole, but I think the closest thing to a physical symbol of America that existed in the 18th century was, in, incredibly, was George Washington's corporal body. Uh, even the military, the, the martial institutions that modern Americans reflexively revere today, was, was eyed with suspicion by most 18th century observers. And the army saw an intentional and dramatic reduction in force at the end of the revolution. And the 750 or so men that made up the military, they were, well, they were stationed mainly out on the Western frontier, basically out of sight, out of mind. The federal state was an invisible republic in the beginning. And you know, how would the new govern, government govern in a fashion that could both be seen and felt in a way that made a positive impact on ordinary Americans? Uh, 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 reading, reading newspaper accounts of Washington traveling from Mount Vernon to New York are revealing. Uh, Washington has said it everywhere he went. The American people were excited, but, but for what? Like, what was he going to do to change their lives for the better? Reading his letters, reading Hamilton's letters, even the letters of some of the early newspaper editors at the time, it's also revealing. It expresses, or these writings collectively express, you know, people that are deeply committed to the new federal order, whatever that even means. Uh, everyone seems to have the public good in mind. Everyone expected things to change, but you know, what would change look like? What form would it take? How was it to be measured? Who was to measure it? Uh, it's true that there was a new government. It's equally true, however, that it had yet to really flex its proverbial muscles. The government, I think this is the best way to sum this up, the government was more a story than a lived reality at the outset of the first administration. How did Federalist partisans view infrastructure as a way of promoting an American future? So that's a great question. Uh, I, I, I think my understanding is I, I think Federalists viewed infrastructure programs as measurable metrics of successful governance. If the new government could start and finish its federal initiatives and these same initiatives made positive change for ordinary Americans, it stands to reason that these Americans would talk about how government programs improved their lives. And thus the, the story would become the lived experience. The, the Federalist vision of empire involved a robust and diversified economy. Uh, it involved federal notes backed by the competence and, and power of, of, a, a, of a national bank. It involved visible federal officials openly tending to the public good. It involved building and maintaining roads and ports and cities. It involved a trained professional army and navy to protect the you know, frontier security and the coasts. Uh, of course, federalists imagined a world of deference for sure, but but deference, and this is not a defense of them by any stretch, this is just an observation. Uh, they imagined a world of deference, but deference to elite men who would employ their years of studying philosophy and statecraft, and politics and political economy to enhance the public good. Uh, it, was, it was definitely something that we would today describe as like an elitist view of the world. Uh, but these men, for, for sure, were, were state builders and part of building a modern republic involved investing 
in infrastructure that made the lives of ordinary Americans easier. Sean, why did they hone in on lighthouses to improve the national economy? Uh, another great question. So, so I think that you know, when when if if the ordinary you know citizen thinks about the early republic, I think things like the X Y Z affair or or you know the Declaration of Independence come to mind, like big ticket items. Uh, but how they related to the average person uh, is you know something that that's not necessarily part of the conversation on a regular basis. Passing like a tax program, right, for example, or negotiating a trade agreement or a peace treaty with another nation or with a Native American culture on the frontier somewhere. Uh, that's something that the government is expected to attend to. But like those types of initiatives were not exactly obvious to ordinary Americans. Uh, if, if you lived along the coast, you may not have even been aware that there was frontier violence. And for those outside of the government, you know, many Americans would likely remain unaware that, you know, some treaty at some point avoided war or made commerce a little better. But physically constructing a series of buildings was another thing entirely. And here's another thing to keep in mind. These buildings, these lighthouses, we have to remember, they're not designed to say house like a court, right? They're, it's not a building for the House of Representatives to meet in or a, a mansion to make a president feel comfortable or important. They were physical markers that were designed to make maritime travel safer. Uh, that means, like, like for example, like the, like the Federal Revenue Service became safer. The, the means toward basic travel and transport became safer. Uh, that means commercial traffic became safer and, and, and more profitable and, and, and more predictable. And these buildings were visible from the start of the project to its completion. So building them, repairing them, maintaining them, staffing them with competent keepers who supported the Constitution, all of this played out in the public view, and it was reported in the newspapers. Uh, the more lighthouses the nation's coasts had, the more advanced the nation appeared, and the more advanced the nation appeared, at least following this logic, the more competent the government appeared. How did they do this? Okay, so before there were clear and obvious proto-parties. Um, there was, you know, there was a general expectation that federal officials would be working toward the, toward the public good. And, you know, this will be a, a conversation for perhaps a, 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 you know, conversation down the road. Obviously, the, it gets a little trickier than that because they begin to realize quite quickly that there isn't a single public good that's representative to every state. Uh, what's good for, you know, elite South Carolinians, for example, may not be what's good for people who were living in, in Rhode Island. At any rate, um, in, the, in the beginning, there is a recognition uh, from statesmen throughout the Republic of the need to improve the safety of, of, of commerce and navigation. And this starts on April 21st. Uh, it's in, it's in the, 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 the records of, of Congress. April 21st, 1789. We the, the nation doesn't even have a president yet, right? Washington's not sworn in until April 30th. Um, the Senate doesn't reach a quorum, I don't think, until April 6th, right? So uh, just, a, just a couple weeks after the federal government starts doing anything, uh, uh, Virginia Representative James Madison introduced a motion to earmark revenue for the purposes of building lighthouses and, and making navigation safer. He was seconded a month later, about a month later, by a Georgia representative named James Jackson. Uh, eventually, Congress drafted, and I'm not going to remember the whole name, but it's something like the establishment of lighthouses and buoys. Um, 
Washington, it's popularly known as the Lighthouse Act of 1789. Uh, Washington signs it into law, and it becomes the first infrastructure program undertaken by the new national government. What it does is it authorized the federal government to construct new lighthouses and federalize existing ones. And it granted the federal government one fiscal year to take over all maintenance and financing of lighthouses, after which states had to decide to either cede their structures and the accompanying land that they sat on to the federal government indefinitely or take over the costs of maintaining and staffing them themselves. And most of these states were quite eager to allow the federal government to to pick up the tab for constructing and repairing and maintaining and staffing lighthouses. Um, once states gave the national government property, it activated the Constitution's enclave clause, which grants the federal government exclusive authority over the ceded territory. And Washington and Hamilton moved with great speed and clear intentions in federalizing lighthouses. Uh, Washington made note a few times before Congress of states uh, who were eager to grant the federal government their lighthouses and, uh, and the acreage that they sat on. And you know, by the end of the first term, Washington, who anyone who's familiar with Washington's writings, you know, he sees it, his writings are littered with you know, self-deprecating passages and his impending death. He's not the most optimistic character in the world, uh, but he writes with unusual optimism that the nation's future uh, is looking bright uh, in part due to the flourishing state of American commerce uh, and navigation. So once that law is passed, you know, we see like North Carolina and a range of other uh, of Virginia, they begin to, to, to get a hold of the Washington administration and happily uh, give up their uh, governance and, and, and maintenance responsibilities to these to these lighthouses. And then we begin to see the mechanics of that really through uh, through the through the Treasury Department, which is what got me onto this chase to begin with. Sean, who do you think was most instrumental in this process? I mean, if if we're talking about the grueling and dangerous work of living in a lighthouse to promote a nationalist agenda, then keepers like Joseph Greenleaf were the boots on the ground that made the idea of lighthouse construction and maintenance a realized success. But in terms of dreaming up the critical role lighthouses played for the national future and actually creating a plan, it has to be Alexander Hamilton. Um, Hamilton, early on, pulled together all the existing information that he could get a hold of on all the lighthouses in the Republic. He itemized the names and salaries of the keepers and superintendents, and he presented this information to the president. Uh, Hamilton next, he, he devised a plan to put all superintendents under what he described as the watchful eye of the secretary of the treasury. Um, in other words, he wanted everyone that was involved in the federal program to be held to the standards of a federal officer. Uh, he was promoting professionalism. He was promoting economic frugality, uh, and he was promoting national competence. Uh, it was Hamilton who wrote to these superintendents about presenting receipts to his department if they wished to be reimbursed. In one instance, for example, uh, he writes to the superintendent of New, Haven's, uh, New Haven in Connecticut's lighthouse, uh, this guy, Jedediah Huntington. Uh, he gets a letter from a warning, really, from Hamilton and, uh, about the limits of federal generosity. Uh, Hamilton lets the guy know that since Connecticut had yet to officially cede its lighthouse to the federal government, any receipts dated after the fiscal year would not be honored by the Treasury Department. This was a clear reminder that if Connecticut wanted any form of federal subsidization, uh, subsidy, rather, I'm sorry, uh, they would very quickly fall in line and allow the federal government to take full responsibility of the lighthouse. 
Uh, Hamilton worked closely with the architects to make certain that the structures were of sound form, that they were built in the safest available locations, that they were staffed with honorable men who were supportive of the federal constitution. He is in the weeds involved in competitive bidding for which architects are going to get the job, uh, which people are going to, you know, get him whale oil or lumber and that sort of thing. Um, he's always looking to get the best contract for the lowest amount of, of money. Um, there's this one example where this Virginia Congressman Josiah Parker, um, he's trying to promote a friend of his to become a lighthouse keeper. And he presents this character who was a veteran from the American Revolution. His name is escaping me right now. He, he suffered a permanent injury during the revolution. So this would have been a sort of nice swan song for the guy to be supported by the government that he was sort of instrumental in helping, helping create. Uh, Hamilton, however, was a restless character who paid attention to detail. He did his own background check, and he discovered that the guy was a known alcoholic. And he warned Washington that the candidate, that this guy's known alcoholism should immediately disqualify him for consideration. Um, I think I think both I think both Hamilton and Washington realized that successful completion and the maintenance and staffing of federal lighthouses would act as a sort of a, a, like a like a national report card. Right, failure at any level would start the new government off with an alarming loss of public confidence. Yet success would likely inspire support for the new government and enthusiasm for future programs. So it, it, it wasn't just structure and form and location. Uh, it wasn't just that people were going to be, you know, governed by the exacting standards of a federal officer who was under the thumb of Alexander Hamilton. It was down to the details. I mean, Hamilton obviously is envisioning a scenario where this character was too drunk to light or relight uh, a, a lighthouse. And that could lead to potential disaster that would, be blamed, you know, it would, the blame would fall right at the footsteps of the federal government. So it's Hamilton who is involved in not only dreaming up the grand plan, but designing the details and getting right down into the weeds of haggling with local producers, local workers, local transporters, uh, you know, writing back and forth with the New York architect, John McComb, like correcting things that he finds, flaws that he sees in, 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 in structural design. I mean, it's, it is really a, a remarkable thing. I mean, it's it's remarkable to see someone with the energy and the creativity and the ability to not only dream up the big ideas, but fill in every single detail. Uh, there's an old quote about James Madison. If the devil was in the details, Madison would be there to meet him. So would Hamilton. Sean, I wonder where did President Washington fall on this debate? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously he is, the buck stops, stops with Washington, right? Uh, Hamilton once wrote after, after learning of Washington's death that, that Washington was a good aegis for him or a good shield for him. And I think it's probably too harsh, but not entirely wrong. Uh, Washington's national esteem and the public perception of his disinterestedness have still, there's still, it's still fooling generations of Americans into thinking that Washington was apolitical, that he was, that he was above politics. Uh, in reality, Washington was a deeply political person. Uh, his ambitions throughout his entire career fleshed this out. Uh, and we don't have the time to go through all of it, but you know, very briefly, he wanted to be part of power. He wanted power to work on his behalf. Uh, well, you know, after suffering through material paucity during the American Revolution, and at least from his vantage point, the economic and political instability of the 1780s, Washington supported a strong government. 
He supported a permanent and professional standing army, and he absolutely supported a culture of deference. He was a federalist through and through. Uh, he might not have been the most educated man in the room, but he was deeply self-aware. Uh, he knew enough to recognize how much he didn't know about certain things. Uh, and he had a remarkable quality to really draw out the best ideas from his subordinates. And he supported Hamilton's ideas in part because Hamilton didn't just have good ideas. Hamilton's ideas or thoughts were attractive because they were so carefully conceived and, and backed with data and details most people would fail to even consider. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why so many people misinterpret Hamilton. Uh, he would typically write out a problem and then philosophize in writing about how it should be handled and then write down the ways in which his opponents would respond to his suggestions and then write down why they were wrong. So if you're you know, not reading very carefully, you could find Hamilton saying something that Hamilton didn't actually support. He was just writing it out fully to, you know, to think about it, to then really pick it apart. That's uh, exactly what you know, the less brilliant but still effective Lord Burley did under, under Queen Elizabeth in the 16th century. But at the end of the day, ha um, Washington giving anything a seal of approval uh, meant that the president thought about it deeply. Uh, so Washington may not have been as involved in the details and the process and the planning, uh, but Washington definitely appreciated how the Federal Lighthouse pro uh, Program fit into the Federalist vision of empire and a commercial empire moving forward. So the commercial republic was going to be dependent on American coasts being being safer. Uh, and I, that's where Washington lends his, his incredible gravity uh, to, to this project. In your opinion, Sean, as a historian, do you think this program was a success? It, it appears so. Uh, by the end of the Federalist administrations of both Washington and Adams, uh, the new government had constructed 10 new lighthouses and federalized the rest. Uh, the coasts, according to the writing of, of Hamilton, according to the writing of Washington, and according to you know uh, enough newspaper ink, uh, the coasts were safer and commercial engagement became safer. Uh, and it also demonstrated the federal government's ability to you know, broadcast and even complete its, its, national, its national objectives. So it is an infrastructure program that was able to um, you know, sort of cultivate real-life benefits for people who were utterly dependent on, on the ocean for transatlantic commerce. So it, it seems to be quite a success. Sean, how do you think this article helps us understand the revolutionary era better? I thought about this one for a little while, um, and here's here's what I think. Uh, I think this article puts constitutional government into action. It's less about the personalities of the founding era and more about putting the Constitution to work. Uh, other than other than creating the three branches of government and and memorializing individual liberties in the Bill of Rights, what did the Constitution actually do for 18th century Americans? Uh, that's a, a, a question, right? A legitimate question. Well, for starters, it enabled public servants to serve the public. And at least in the spaces covered by this article, that service was constructing and maintaining lighthouses for the betterment of the nation. And I think it, I think it more importantly puts into focus a critical political lesson. The, the national thinkers who helped draft and implement the federal constitution were ultimately hoping to remind Americans that the American Revolution was not a revolution against government, but against tyrannical government. The new federal architecture, with its multiple branches, its various ways of you know, being elected or selected or screened, its checks and balances, its individual safeguards, was the opposite of tyranny. 
and it was, at least theoretically, a carefully calibrated palladium for American liberty. Sean David McGee, thanks again. Thank you so much, Brady. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. Thank you.